This edition of Outcasting will begin in a few moments. Like all public radio stations, WDFH depends on financial support from our listeners. Please visit WDFH.org and click on Donate to make your tax-deductible gift. Shows like this can't be done without your support. Thanks, and now, Outcasting. We currently require that students learn the history of a man, an African-American man, who fought valiantly for everyone's civil rights and who was assassinated for his efforts, and that was Dr. Martin Luther King. But there was also a gay American man who also fought valiantly for everyone's civil rights and was also assassinated for his efforts, and his name was Harvey Milk. This is Outcasting, the Lower Hudson River Valley's only youth-run radio show dealing with LGBTQ struggles, triumphs, lifestyles, and favorite conspiracy theories, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Westchester Public Radio, WDFH FM 90.3, in Austin, New York, and on the net at WDFH.org. Hi, I'm Juliana. On this edition of Outcasting, we'll discuss two distinctly different legislative approaches concerning how LGBTQ issues are treated in schools. In California, the Fair, Accurate, Inclusive, and Respectful, or FAIR Act, went into effect on January 1, 2012. In a few moments, we'll talk with the law's author, California State Senator Mark Leno. In stark contrast, Tennessee's so-called Don't Say Gay Bill would prohibit public school personnel throughout the state from discussing anything other than heterosexuality from kindergarten through eighth grade. Later in the program, we'll talk with Callie Wise and Brad Palmertree, co-chairs of the Middle Tennessee Chapter of GLSEN, the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network. California Democratic Senator Mark Leno introduced and championed the Fair, Accurate, Inclusive, and Respectful Education, or FAIR, Act that requires LGBT history to be taught in California schools. Senator Leno, thanks so much for joining us. Juliana, it's a pleasure to be with you. What inspired you to propose this bill? Well, the California Education Code prior to our bill, which is now law, required that the role and contribution of African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, Native Americans, Asian Pacific Islander Americans, European Americans, female Americans, and other individuals from traditionally overlooked communities be included in our school social study classes. This bill, as you know, requires the inclusion of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Americans, and those from the disability community. So we already have a very broad and inclusive social studies requirement in our public schools. This is just a small addition to it. Now, keep it in the context of an ever-growing and unfortunate, if not tragic, phenomenon of bullying in our public school system. This includes physical emotional, verbal harassment to such a degree that we've seen a rash of suicides among 12- and 13-year-old kids going home, in some cases hanging themselves from the backyard tree, in other cases putting a gun to their head and pulling the trigger, and in communications of notes they've left or in conversations they've had with friends prior to their suicides, Uh, clearly spoke to the unbearable pain they were experiencing as a result of this bullying and harassment. 
So we know from a number of reports and studies that school districts which already have this inclusive kind of curriculum report significantly lower rates of all kinds of bullying, way beyond the LGBT community. And so we know that this can be effective in teaching students to better understand the broad diversity of the human experience and to better understand the differences among themselves and their fellow students and that there is reason to respect those differences. So that really was the inspiration for the bill. What would you like to see included in this new curriculum? Well, it's a question I get often asked, and sometimes there's the misunderstanding that for some reason we want to out historical characters, and the question that follows is why is it important to know that an inventor was a homosexual, and why are we talking about sexuality and sexual orientation in our social studies classes? That's really not what this is about at all. I won't be the one who will be making these decisions. There's a parallel track that will unfold in the coming months and years. One is at the state level, and that's at the State Board of Education, which has a multi-year, comprehensive, very thorough process in amending our school textbooks. And there won't be any reprinting of textbooks due to our ongoing budget crisis until around 2015-2016, but at the same time, the bill has become law, and school districts must come into compliance, and that will be decided upon by local school boards in local school districts with public process and public comment as to how best to implement this new law, and so I would imagine that it will be implemented differently from county to county which is appropriate. It should be decided at the local level, but there are supplemental instructional materials currently available for school districts to use to come into compliance. I can tell you that it's appropriate that we currently require that students learn the fact of the history of a man, an African-American man, who fought valiantly for everyone's civil rights and who was assassinated for his efforts, and that was Dr. Martin Luther King. But there was also a gay American man who also fought valiantly for everyone's civil rights and was also assassinated for his efforts, and his name was Harvey Milk. He also happened to be the very first openly gay person elected to public office in the state of California back in 1977. So that's one possibility. But I also would offer as a, pos- as, a, as a suggestion that we're talking about a, a very important and fascinating chapter of civil rights history. You know, it was as recently as 1972 that the American Psychiatric Association listed homosexuality as a mental illness that changed in 1973. And it was a very significant step for them to take because once it was no longer a mental illness, state legislatures, one by one, began to repeal what were known as sodomy laws. Sodomy laws made the consensual act of two adults of the same gender to be a felony. But that changed in the 1970s and 1980s, and it was decriminalized for adults of the same gender to have consensual relations. 
It wasn't long after that that state after state amended their laws so that it would be illegal to discriminate in housing and employment based on sexual orientation and subsequently based on gender identity. Now, of course, state after state, uh, we have six now, including the District of Columbia, which allow for equal marriage rights for all of their citizens. And this past year, we saw a debate in the United States Congress with the support and leadership of the President of the United States to end the prohibition for gay and lesbian Americans who wish to serve openly and honorably in our military, joining dozens of other countries around the world who already have integrated their military. So I just pose that, isn't this fascinating that within 40 years, we've gone from mental illness to nearly first-class citizenship. Of course, there are still no federal protections for any kind of rights for LGBT Americans, but we're moving in that direction. And the question is, how did this happen? Who were the historical figures who helped make this happen? What were the turning points? Where were the debates that led for this path to equality to occur? It's a very important chapter of history, and I think it would benefit, again, these grade school students who at an early age recognize that the classmate two desks down is different and that this different kid is actually part of a community, a community which has been historically demonized and discriminated against and in recent decades has successfully fought for its civil rights and full inclusion in society. And again, that's what we're trying to teach here through this new law. We're talking with California Democratic Senator Mark Leno. Senator Leno introduced and championed the Fair, Accurate, Inclusive, and Respectful Education, or FAIR Act, that requires LGBT history to be taught in California schools. It was signed by Governor Jerry Brown on July 14, 2011, and took effect on January 1, 2012. With the passing of this law, do you expect it to have a ripple effect outside of California? Well, from what I understand, we are the first state to take this step and to require this by statute for inclusion in social studies instruction. And I would imagine, as California has led the way on so many social issues, that though we're the first, I would doubt that we'll be the last. What were some of the arguments for and against this bill as it was being debated, and how did you and other supporters address the opposition? Some of the arguments that were expressed in opposition, I believe, were rather extreme and not even germane. Uh, There really were suggestions that the sky will fall and civilization as we know it will come to an end, that there is no need to be teaching kindergartners about uh, sexuality and homosexuality and cross-dressing. And I hope I've explained clearly that that is not what we're doing here at all. Yes, this is for K through 12 instruction, but social studies in most cases don't begin until the fourth or fifth grade. So uh, that's really where this instruction, I imagine, will begin. There were hyperbolic concerns and not uncommonly, just as we experienced in the Prop 8 debate around equal marriage rights, uh, 
the concern for children and their health and well-being is raised as a red herring, as a red flag, as something to frighten people that we're going to do harm to children. In fact, it's quite the opposite. This is going to benefit children. It's going to benefit their safety. And it's going to benefit both the heterosexual students and the LGBT students. Because the LGBT students, of course, will better understand their own history and their community's history and rightfully have greater self-respect and a higher self-esteem, which is always good for students in a learning environment. And also, to the degree that heterosexual students better understand the differences among themselves and their classmates, that there will be less harassment, physical, emotional, verbal, that there will be more peaceful campuses and a better environment conducive to learning and to study. And all of our children, irrespective of their sexual orientation, have a legal right to feel safe as they go to school so that they can take make use of their learning environment so they can attain uh, the highest levels of achievement. And that is really what this is all about. How would you address um, the bill that was proposed in Tennessee that made it, that would make it illegal to, for a teacher to mention homosexuality until ninth grade? Well, I probably won't surprise you by suggesting that that is uh, very nonsensical. Uh, I would ask whoever is proposing that in Tennessee to tell me how that benefits a sixth-grade boy in Ventura County, California, who was shot dead in his classroom by a fellow sixth-grader. Shot dead in his classroom by a fellow student. And when the teacher, horrified, asked the assailant, what have you done and why did you do that? The assailant responded, the 12-year-old assailant responded that his classmate was too girly. And that's a clear indication that we are failing our students by denying them information they need. Kids much younger than the ninth grade are sensing the differences among them, recognizing that there are different kinds of kids. And some of those differences relate both to gender identity and presentation, which really is much more noticeable than what someone's sexual orientation might be. But it all folds into the same issue of being different. And if we want to pretend that kids younger than ninth grade don't perceive these differences, we're not going to reach our goal of providing a safe learning environment for all students. As a high school senior, I would have actually loved to have learned about LGBT things at a younger age because I feel like the people around me at my age sort of don't have an awareness of it. So definitely starting at a young age would be a good idea. And, of course, there are kids much younger than that who are arriving at school with their two mommies or their two daddies. (laughs) So very young kids realize the differences among us. And, of course, at that age, before they've been taught to dislike those who are different, before they've been taught to discriminate, before they've been taught to be mean-spirited, they all get along very nicely. Senator Leno, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. 
I thank you for your interest in this important issue. You are listening to Outcasting, the Lower Hudson River Valley's only youth-run radio show dealing with LGBTQ struggles, triumphs, lifestyles, and favorite conspiracy theories, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Westchester Public Radio, WDFH-FM 90.3 in Austin, New York, and on the net at WDFH.org. On this edition, we're talking about two very different approaches to how LGBT issues are treated in public schools. As we've just been discussing, California's Fair, Accurate, Inclusive, and Respectful, or FAIR Act, will require school curricula to include LGBT history and the contributions of notable LGBT individuals. Now we turn to Tennessee, where the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill would prohibit discussion of anything other than heterosexuality from kindergarten through eighth grade in the state's public schools. We're speaking with Brad Palmertree and Callie Wise, co-chairs from Glisson's Middle Tennessee chapter based in Nashville. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Can you give us a quick overview on what the proposed Don't Say Gay Bill entails? The Don't Say Gay Bill is a, it's become a perennial of sorts. Uh, It has been introduced in our state legislature for about six six years now, Um, and the same guy Senator Stacy Campfield has brought it up each year. Um, it would make it illegal for any teacher or school administrator, really anybody in a school setting, to provide materials and or education on anything other than heterosexuality. Now, that was the original language. It got changed last year before it passed to the Senate. Um, and the language now is that it's illegal for anyone to provide education or materials on anything other than, quote, natural human re- human reproduction. That's the language, so that's the general gist of it. Um, as I said, last year I passed the Senate, and this year it's uh, making its way through the House, and this is the closest that it's ever become to actually becoming a law. Obviously, this bill has met frequent opposition. Why do you think it's been consistently pushed? Primarily probably because we, uh, as you mentioned, Stacey Canfield, uh, Senator out of Knoxville has consistently uh, been pushing that as part of his, it's a regular part of his agenda uh, to uh, push these pieces of legislation and similar uh, ones that have been done on other LGBT topics and issues. So I think it mainly uh, comes from this particular uh, legislative issues and what he, his agenda is. I know that Stacy has repeatedly said that he brought it up originally because he was told by some people that there were teachers in classrooms in Tennessee that were teaching homosexuality. And that was, it's very broad. Um, it turns out that that wasn't even substantiated. It was actually like an outside group based outside of Tennessee that were, that was kind of guiding him to do this. The, you know, Tennessee Educators Association, National um, Educators Association both came down and provided curriculum information and actually did a little bit of a study and to say that, you know what, this is not happening. It's, uh, it's completely unfounded. So what you're saying here is that you're trying to push a, a solution that's like looking for a problem. He insists that, that it's happening every day in our, in our state's classrooms, but we know that it's not. If this bill were to pass, how do you think it would adversely affect schools? It would directly affect any 
gay-straight alliances or diversity clubs, no-hate clubs, whatever, you know, kind of clubs that actually, that actively deal with LGBT-related issues in schools. We have one school, a magnet school here in Nashville, that is a combined junior and high school. And so it's grades 7 through 12. They have a very, very active GSA with like 40 to 50 members. What would, what's going to happen to their, to the classroom in which they meet? All the posters are going to have to come down. They're going to have to avoid certain topics. The advisor, I'm not even sure what would happen with her. I think she'd be too scared <laughs> to even attend a meeting, although it's kind of required that an advisor be in the room, you know. And then there are all these unintended consequences that we have been trying to bring to, bring to, to the legislator's attention, and it's finally getting some traction. Some unintentional consequences are when a student is walking down the hallway and he's, uh, he or she is called a anti-LGBT derogatory term and goes to tell a teacher or maybe a guidance counselor or even just feels comfortable enough to speak to the lunch lady, they cannot help him or her with that issue because they've been forbidden to provide direction or guidance or, you know, any kind of education on it. It's not going to get rid of gay kids in school. It's, not going, it's just going to make them feel scared and have to hide, uh, but it's not going to get rid of them. Another issue that we are concerned about happening is actually um, with non-LGBT students and students who have same-sex parents. Um, that are living within their couples or families. So this could be a very adversely affect them because a lot of young students, are, when they come into early, especially early grades, spend a lot of time talking about family, what their parents do, what their mom and dad do. So they get that terminology early. But, for instance, I have a four-year-old daughter, and she makes no bones about having two moms. So how will that affect her in going into a school and talking about her two moms, will she not even be acknowledged? Will she even be allowed to participate in activities? Will she be failed for mentioning it in an activity or something like that? How would that affect her? And then, of course, that would, if it's negative reaction, then I'm sure that would impact her learning ability and her desire to even be in school. So we see this as a potential snowball effect where it's not just something, even though the intent may have been at one time to target LGBT specifically, it could have a lot of potential to affect others. In fact, I had to, uh, my daughter's going to be starting kindergarten next year, so I had to actually ask the principal at the school she's going to if this is going to be an issue. And they were very nice about it, but they were still like, it looked like I'm not sure if I even can talk about this. And I think that's another problem, that there would be a misconception whether they can actually deal with the issue or not. So some people may just be totally terrified of even touching it, and even if it never passes. So it can still create an adverse event. We're speaking with Brad Palmertree and Callie Wise, co-chairs of Middle Tennessee's Glisten chapter based in Nashville. What are the arguments that you're hearing in favor of this bill? I really do believe that they feel that this is something that parents should have complete control over. And when it gets to topics as sensitive as this, they like to think that whatever their children hear, it's up to their discretion. A lot of the arguments that they make is that it's that the that kids are too young to understand or um, to appreciate um, an education such as that. But I think we all know that 
even though there's not a word for it at third grade, everyone knows that at least gender bias happens really, really early. And now, thankfully, we're getting more and more research coming out showing that it does happen, that it does indeed happen, that one of the first forms of bullying to take place on the playground is in the form of gender bias, that you're not acting like a boy enough or your hair is too short and you're a girl or you're not wearing the right colors. You know, that happens very early and that just perpetuates into the higher grades where it just fosters a negative attitude about gender stereotypes and anti-LGBT bias. And that's so that's our argument that you say the kids don't understand. They do understand. It's, they just don't have words for it. So as long as it's presented in an age-appropriate way, there should be no, it should be a non-issue. As a former educator, I also know that you can't stop debate on sensitive topics. Just because a topic is difficult or sensitive or even controversial, you can talk about it. These young people do need to learn how to articulate uh, their views, their oppositions, their support for issues. And this is one of the many that's in our society, and like I said, it's not going away. So, I mean, they definitely need to learn how to deal with it, whether for or against. And the way they learn to argue the points is in school. I actually had my daughter ask the other day, saw a young um, lady working in a restaurant. She said, is that a boy or a girl? Because she has short hair. And she looked very androgynous. And I was like, shh, don't say that. Uh, so I corrected her real quick and said, that's rude, you know, say that, you know, about people, um, and try to correct her. But that, that, it starts very young. She's only four. And she already says boys do this and girls do that. So there is evidence, there's proof that these are topics that we do need to be talking to our young people about uh, at very young ages. And because in different ways they're seeing the, the stereotyping and the bias and things that just like that are festering uh, building as they go through school. Do you think that this bill being proposed has had an effect on schools now before, even before anything has been passed? I do. Yes. Yeah. Um, I I mean, LGBTQ students already are subject to school bullying and harassment and, and studies, you know, routinely show this. These types of bills and laws do nothing but further stigmatize these students. They isolate them from their peers. They increase their vulnerability to violence. What this bill does is makes it even harder for teachers to step in and intervene and help these students. It makes them afraid of their job or afraid for their jobs. Their hands would be tied. Even though the bill has not passed, people have come to me and said, I thought it already passed and I thought it was law. In an online community where anonymity is... (laughs) prevalent. I've been on Facebook group forums where people are just running amok with their opinions and and just hateful, hateful language um, because the polarizing effect that this bill has. How do you think that this bill would adversely affect other state school districts if it passed? There are already similar pieces of legislation that are being proposed, um, and that's what we were afraid of, that legislatures would pick this thing up and run with it. And once one starts in one state, then the others, you know, pick it up. It's a, kind of a non-stop inundation <laughs> of negativity. So we hope to stop it now so that it won't push over into other states. 
We've been speaking with Brad Palmertree and Callie Wise, co-chairs of Middle Tennessee's Glisten chapter based in Nashville. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank, Thank you. you so much. It was great having It was great being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, the Lower Hudson River Valley's only youth-run radio show dealing with LGBTQ struggles, triumphs, lifestyles, and favorite conspiracy theories, where you don't have to be queer to be here. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home, at school, or with yourself, call the Trevor Hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. That number again is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. Outcasting is a production of Westchester Public Radio, WDFH FM 90.3 in Austin, New York, and on the net at WDFH.org. I'm Juliana. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in again next time. If you enjoyed this program, please make a tax-deductible gift to WDFH. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit WDFH.org and click on Donate. Thanks. Thanks.